Today's scripture is from Luke chapter 10, verse 25 through 37. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Hi everyone, and thank you for joining us today. My name is Aaron, and I'm one of the pastors at Exilic. And I wanna to begin today uh, by asking you one question. Have you ever done something that you are so ashamed about that you never wanted to tell a single soul? And so the weeks go by, the months go by, the years go by and you never tell anyone. But because you never tell anyone, it's almost like that silence is like gasoline that is being poured on your shame. And as a result, the flame of your shame gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And so even though you try to move on with your life, the shadow of that shame seems to follow you wherever you, wherever you go. And you see, that, that's the thing about shame. When we feel ashamed about something and we keep it a secret, it really is a limitation that hinders us from truly moving on, truly being healed, and truly growing. But have you ever shared something that you're really ashamed about, something that you kept hidden in the dark, in the secret for a long time? Have you ever shared something like that with someone that you trust, someone that loves you? It's almost like that shame is wilting and withering away and all of a sudden you finally feel free because you were finally able to vocalize the shame that you felt. You see, shame hinders our growth. But when we are unashamed to talk about our shame and when we vocalize our shame, it really does allow us to grow. And so here's what I want to do today. I want to take a pause from our current series on habits. 
And what I want to do is I want to create a space for us to talk about our shame. Specifically, what I want to do is to create a space for us to unashamedly talk about our subtle racism, our unconscious biases that lie at the deepest subterranean levels of our hearts. Because if we are too ashamed to talk about the racism that lies within our hearts, if we're too ashamed about it, we can never fully eradicate, purge, and excavate the racism and unconscious biases that lie in our hearts. It's only when we are unashamed to vocalize the shame that we have that we can truly, truly grow. And that is what I want for every single one of us. And if you're a Christian, and I know that not everyone at Exilic is, but if you're a Christian in particular, Jesus took your shame and he bore your shame. And if he took your shame to the cross, and if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive your sins, which means that you should be unashamed to talk about your shame. And so here's what I wanna do. I not only wanna talk about racism in general and the racism that is out there, but I also wanna uncomfortably talk about the racism that lies in here. I also want to take this opportunity to mourn and lament with what the black community is going through right now. And not only right now, but has been going through for a very, very long time. Because the truth of the matter is that knee that was on the neck of George Floyd for nine minutes has been on the collective knee of black people for the past 400 years. And it's not only by a minority group of police officers or white supremacists, it's all of us, it's me. And so what I wanna do is I wanna take a look at the most famous parable Jesus ever told, and that is the Good Samaritan. Now this parable is so famous and has been preached on so many times, I've always been hesitant to even talk about it. But if right now is not a good time to talk about the Good Samaritan, I don't know when it will be. So we're gonna take a look at this parable. Now, I could easily do three or four sermons on this parable because of how deep it is. And there are all sorts of different angles that you can take. But for our purposes here today, I do just wanna shine a ray of light on some of the most obvious angles of this parable. So read with me verses 30 to 32. Jesus said a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road and when he saw the man, he passed on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. In these verses, we have two groups of people. We have the robbers and we have the religious leaders. Chances are the robbers were lower class, which is why they robbed the man. And chances are they were probably also very uneducated. The religious leaders, on the other hand, 
were upper class and very educated. These two groups of people could not have been any more different, and yet the one thing that they shared in common was the belief, the ideology, that this man's life, it did not matter. And similarly today in our culture, black lives, they do not matter. If you are not black, we have been socialized to have a deficient anthropological view of black people. That black people are inferior, black men in particular are dangerous, black people are thugs. And there's all sorts of reasons why. There's historical reasons dating back to slavery and the ripple effects of that to this day. There's systemic reasons, there's sociological reasons, there's familial cultural reasons. Because of the way that you were brought up, you were shaped to think a certain way about black people. There's all sorts of reasons why. But unless these narratives begin to change about black people, these enslaving narratives, black lives will never matter. If we want to end racism, it must first be ended in our own hearts. I like what Martin Luther King Jr. says in his most famous speech, The American Dream. And he says the whole concept of the image of God is the idea that all men have something within them that God injected. This gives him a uniqueness. It gives him worth. It gives him dignity. And we must never forget this. There are no gradations in the image of God. Every man from a treble white to a base black is significant on God's keyboard, precisely because every man is made in the image of God. Why should the man that was robbed and left half dead, why should that man's life have mattered to the robbers, to the religious leaders? It's because he's made in the image of God. Why should black lives matter? Because they are made in the image of God. Brian Stevenson, who's a lawyer and a social justice activist, wrote an article recently on the frustrations behind the George Floyd protests. And Stevenson says the great evil of American slavery wasn't the involuntary servitude. It was the fiction that black people aren't as good as white people and aren't the equals of white people and are less evolved, less human, less capable, less worthy, less deserving than white people. Now, let me quickly pivot here for a moment. Uh, I love the fact that our, our church has a lot of Christians, but our church also has a lot of people that are seekers, skeptics, and are carefully and critically thinking through whether there really is a God or not. And so let me take this time to address you for a moment. The basis by which MLK and Brian Stevenson, the basis, the foundation by which they do everything that they do and did, was the fact that we are all made in the image of God, all of us. And therefore, because we are made in the image of God, we all have inherent dignity, value, and worth. Now you take God out of that equation, 
Even an atheist would say that we don't have inherent dignity, value, and worth. The Associate Justice of the Supreme Court, Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr., in the early 20th century once said this, there is no reason for attributing to a man a significance different in kind from that which belongs to a baboon or a grain of sand. You see, if all we are is sophisticated baboons or grown-up germs who've won the cosmic lottery, doesn't mean that we have inherent dignity, value, and worth. All it means is that we were the lucky ones to win the game of survival of the fittest, where we were the strongest and everyone else was the weakest. But if there really is a God who fashioned us in His image, it does mean that we have inherent dignity, value, and worth. Why? Because God has inherent dignity, value, and worth. But you know what? It's not enough just to know it up here. We also need to know it down here. These two religious leaders, they knew it up here. Their theology was orthodox, but they didn't know it down here. Which is why when they saw the man lying half dead on the road, they just passed him by. The longest distance in the world is not from America to Australia. The longest distance in the world is from the head to the heart. And when it comes to matters on race, this is a journey that I am still going on. In 1981, my family and I, we moved to the United States. We had nothing. We had no money. We didn't understand this weird culture. We couldn't speak the language. I still remember going to speech class because I had the hardest time pronouncing the letter S. But you know what? By and large, the Asian American experience, the Asian American narrative, it's one of success. I realize that Asian Americans have the greatest disparity when it comes to finances. I recognize that. But by and large, the Asian American experience is one of success. And so growing up, whenever I would take a look at the African American narrative and compare it to the Asian American narrative, I was puzzled particularly because the African-American community, they, they can speak the language. They understand the culture, which is a huge advantage. So why wasn't it more like the Asian-American experience? Now, for those of you who are not black in our community, which is the vast majority of you, have you ever had that thought percolate in your head? I have. You see, no one had ever told me that when my family, we came to the United States, we did not come to a country that was a clean, blank slate. We came to a country midstream that was already filled with racial tensions and social structures that were set in place. No one had ever told me that I cannot understand the Asian American experience, therefore, unless I first understand the African American experience, because any freedom I enjoy, any equality that I enjoy, any pursuit of happiness I enjoy, came because of the African American community that had come before me. No one had ever told me that, and I had not bothered to learn that. No one had ever told me that all minorities, we stand upon the shoulders and the backs of the African-American community that was broken on our behalf and still breaks to this day. You know, uh, when this whole COVID-19 thing happened, 
Asian Americans were experiencing uh, a lot of racism because of this Chinese virus. And uh, I know a lot of you have received ignorant comments. I've received some ignorant comments. And I, I remember, um, you know, even walking on the streets and uh, there was a little girl that was like 20 or 30 feet away from me. And uh, her mother grabbed her arm violently and pulled her away because it's not, it's not good enough to social distance 20 or 30 feet away from someone that looks like me. You need to be like 230, 300 feet away from someone that looks like me. It's like I was this monster. I talked to many of you who, who have said that you're afraid to even go outside because you're afraid of being attacked for causing this pandemic. Just when Asian Americans have sort of made it on the scene because of crazy rush Asians or, or Asian American cuisine, Asian Americans are now set back I don't know how many years because of this quote-unquote Chinese virus. But you know, the collective experience of the Asian American community, whether it's ignorant comments or being treated like a monster or you have a disease or, or um, being afraid to go outside because you're afraid of being attacked, this has been the collective experience of black people for the past 400 years. The ignorant comments, being treated like you're less than or you're a monster, being afraid to go outside because you'll get shot jogging, being afraid to be inside, like Breonna Taylor and Kenneth Walker. This has been the collective experience of the black community for far too long, and something needs to change. And if we are going to see racism eradicated from our society, it first, before we do anything else, it has to be eradicated from our own lives and the narrative needs to change. If you take a look with me at verse 33, it says, but a Samaritan as he traveled came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. So the first thing that the Samaritan does is that he sees him. You know, the two religious leaders, they did not see him. But the Samaritan does. And for too long, it has taken the, the toll of black men, black women, and black children dying for us to finally see them when they have been crying out for help for the past 400 years. It has taken us too long to see them. It has taken the church too long to see them. It has taken society too long to see them. It's taken me too long to see that. Today, the person lying half dead on the road is not a Samaritan. It's a black person. And we cannot look away. We cannot preach grace and not preach the truth. Because the truth of the matter is today, black lives do not matter. I like what Desmond Tutu said when he said, if you are neutral in situations of injustice, you have chosen the side of the oppressor. We cannot be neutral. You cannot be neutral. The church cannot be neutral. Our society, we cannot be neutral. We must do something about it. And the Samaritan does. And we know that because it says that he is moved with pity. 
And the word that is used there for pity means that the Samaritan's inner bowels were moved with compassion for the Jewish man that was lying half dead on the road. And similarly, we are also called to be moved with compassion for what is happening to the black community right now. To highlight what makes this parable even more unique is that Samaritans and Jews ethnically Racially, they never associated with one another. And here Jesus is trying to bridge the gap. That the reason why the Samaritan helped this Jewish man, even in the midst of the racial tensions, is because we are all made in the image of God. But this parable is not only about social justice and social ethics, although it is but it's really also about how we are not as ethical as we think we are. You see, Jesus is pointing to the fact that he himself is the Good Samaritan. Did you know that the word pity that is used here by the Good Samaritan is the word that is used most often of Jesus himself? Jesus is frequently described as having pity and moved to his inner bowels with compassion for us. And the reason why Jesus has compassion over us is because we are not as ethical as we think we are. You see, the whole point of this parable at the very beginning, contextually speaking, is when a lawyer comes up to Jesus and says, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And it's in that context that Jesus tells this story. And what he's trying to show this young lawyer is that there is nothing that you can do to inherit eternal life. You are not as ethical as you think you are. You are dead in your sins and your transgressions, but I am the good Samaritan that has come to give you life. In Acts uh, 8.33, it says, In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice for his life was taken from the earth. You know what's so interesting about this verse? The first is that the person that is saying this verse, it's a black man. And the reason why I strategically chose this verse is because Christianity has become so whitewashed that the idea that a person of color can be in the Bible, it is completely surprising to us. When I take a look at my kids' picture Bibles, it's all white people. But when we take a look at the scriptures, it is also filled with people of color. But the second reason why I mention this verse is because this man is asking Philip the question, who is this man that was humiliated? Who is this man that was deprived of justice? Who is this man that gave up his final breath? And Philip says, the person that you're quoting is Isaiah. And the person that Isaiah is talking about is Jesus. He was deprived of justice because he died a death that he did not deserve. So why did he voluntarily die that death? He died that death because he bore our sins in our place and took on the penalty that we deserve. And not just sins in general, but our subtle racism, our unconscious biases, our lack of empathy and compassion, our lack of action to do anything for other people other than ourselves. That self-centeredness, 
He died for that. He took it upon himself so that the justice and the wrath that we should have experienced was fallen upon him. Now, if you let that good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ penetrate into the deepest subterranean levels of your heart, it should cause you to live a certain way. I think one of the first things that all of us can do is to learn, to lament, to listen, and to act. Uh, I have the privilege of attending one to two meetings per week with city uh, city leaders and church leaders uh, in New York and throughout the country. And just being able to listen to black pastors talk about how they're feeling right now, I cannot tell you how helpful that has been for me. And because I've been able to learn more and understand and place myself in their shoes for a moment, It's also helped me to be better at lamenting because the Bible says that we need to mourn with those who mourn and grieve with those who grieve. And you know what, a black community right now, it is mourning. And so listening, learning, lamenting, and acting. This past week, I was able to participate in a march. And one of the coolest things about it is that it wasn't just black people marching, but there were non-black people that were marching in solidarity with our black brothers and sisters because black lives should not just matter to black people but they should matter to all of us. But protests are not just enough. What we also need to do is practice our civic duties and to vote. And yes, voting brings about slow change, but it is the most concrete way of bringing about systemic change in our country. But we can't just act individually. We also need to act institutionally. And for too long, I I wanna make a public Uh, apology and repentance in saying that as a church, we have not done enough. I've preached on racism. We just had a fall retreat on racism. That's not enough. This sermon, it's not enough. This conversation, these acts of racism, they're not going anywhere. And so as a church, we need to think about in an enduring way how to talk about race. And I want you to know that we are actively brainstorming and thinking about better ways of creating spaces for us to think about this, creating spaces for us where we don't have to be unashamed to talk about our shame because that will never help us to grow, creating spaces for us to dialogue, creating spaces for us to listen and to learn. Because if we want racism to end in our society, it first needs to end in us. Let's pray. Father, we need your help. Uh, We need your Holy Spirit's help exposing the sin that is in our lives. Uh, We need your help uh, confronting some of the darkness and the evil that is in us. God, we mourn and lament with what is taking place right now in the black community and has been taking place for hundreds and hundreds of years and something needs to change. And we need your help to be the change. Help us, God, because we need you now more than ever. In your name I pray. Amen. Uh, At this time, we are going to have a time of offering. And it's an opportunity to give back to the mission of our church. And I want us to take this opportunity to sing to our great God as well for everything that he has done on our behalf.